Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 22nd, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk about the alternative energy that currently exists with ScientificAmerican.com Associate Editor David Biello, our energy and environment guy. We'll test your knowledge about some current science in the news. And first up, Scientific American Magazine Editor-in-Chief John Rennie talks about some of the topics we cover in the November issue. We spoke in his office. Hey, John, the November issue of Scientific American's out. It's a, uh, there's an interesting kind of overarching futuristic theme here. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, articles in this issue, somewhat by uh, coincidence more than design, really have to do with uh, a lot of of uh, the future developments for technology, um, new kinds of technologies or, or new sorts of technological solutions that uh, we could apply to various problems. And as a result, uh, there are a lot of uh, very science fiction-like elements that pop up in these stories. The cover piece is plugging into the brain Let's, uh, let's talk about that just a little bit. The, the, the whole matrix, you know, you're going to get a plug stuck into the back of your neck and be able to upload and download massive amounts of information. Yes, uh, th- this re- story really does have to do a lot with ex- something like the matrix. Um, uh, in, in this uh, article, Gary Sticks examines that issue. Science fiction writers for a very long time have been uh, batting around this idea that eventually we will be able to connect machines directly up to the brain and uh, we would be able to uh, control various devices with our thoughts or be able to download information uh, from the machines into our brains. And of course, you've even got the uh, uh, the sorts of people like Ray Kurzweil who dream of a day when we might be able to upload our uh, our consciousness and our memories into uh, some other sort of machine. Right. So uh, we, we covered that in a previous episode with uh, Glenn Zorpet and John Horgan, which was subtitled, you know, Ray Kurzweil's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, in, in this case, uh, Gary Sticks uh, manages to take a look at that and a number of other related technologies and, uh, and tries to get a realistic sense of where we are with those. And the bottom line is that uh, some of those technologies are, are certainly very real and will most likely to continue to develop. For example, we, we do clearly have some sorts of uh, early stage uh, systems for being able to control devices more or less purely by the power of thought, and those should become uh, a huge help to especially, say, people in the disabled community or people in lots of other lines of work. But if you're talking about trying to move the information the other way, of trying to take a really particularly, say, complicated information, the equivalent of, say, downloading a book into your head, we're a long way from that. Uh, so it's uh, it's interesting to see, but um, we'll all keep watching what happens. But for right now, don't count on just being able to cram for exams uh, by flipping a switch. Right. If you want to learn how to fly a helicopter, you're going to have to do it the old-fashioned way and spend literally weeks of training. I hope more than that, actually. <laughs> um, there's uh, another article in here about efforts to mitigate solar warming by actually possibly putting little parasols into orbit. Right. This falls under the heading of, of geoengineering. Um, geoengineering, the idea of, well, we're, we've already been inadvertently uh, monkeying around with the uh, the Earth's climate. What if we set about trying to do it deliberately? To try to... Inadvertently. Yeah. <laughs> to solve the problems of global warming. Um, and, and so, realistically, could we hope to try to do that? Uh, Robert Kunzig uh, takes a look at a number of proposals. And this is an idea that uh, scientists 
are starting to take quite seriously, a little bit out of desperation. If you asked a few years ago, most scientists would say that fundamentally the idea of geoengineering was just intrinsically so far-fetched or such a bad idea on the face of it, because we don't know enough about climate to be able to uh, control it very well, they would have said, well, we shouldn't even waste time thinking about it. Uh, more recently, um, some climatologists have started to get so concerned that we've been failing to slow down the rate at which we're pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then maybe we need to have some sort of emergency procedure in our hip pocket to at least, uh, you know, something we might be able to do to address it in the future. And uh, there are several ways you you could do it. Um, the uh, the you, you mentioned one, which was the idea of trying to construct sort of a giant parasol in space. Um, it, it really wouldn't consist of one giant parasol. It would actually consist of, of millions and millions of tiny little, uh, very lightweight um, flyers uh, that would be positioned in space, and they would. I think, you know, in effect, create a sort of structure that was tens of thousands of miles long in space, and they would all be very carefully controlled, and they would act still like one big sunscreen uh, to help keep the sun's rays from hitting the Earth. Um, very, very expensive, like $5 trillion, and we don't even, you know, we'd really barely be able to think of trying to do something like that. There are less expensive ways of trying to do it, um, ways that are, in fact, so potentially inexpensive that individual countries could could do it. So, for example, the United States might just decide to do this on its own. Um, it could pump more uh, uh, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, which would put little sulfate particles into the atmosphere. Or you can uh, pump lots of uh, sea mist, it seems, up into the atmosphere and create the level of uh, higher level of water droplets. Uh, both of those plans, you would be, in effect, creating sort of clouds uh, that would be helping to bounce the sunlight back out. But uh, there are a lot of climate hitches involved with all of that. Side effects may include... Uh, acid rain, uh, uncontrolled changes in uh, rainfall or climate, uh, and uh, you know a host of other problems. Uh, not least among them, the fact that, you know, remember, in all of these situations, you're masking what would tend to be the Earth's natural tendency to warm up with all that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if you ever stop doing this, if you ever take your hands off the wheel, you're going to suddenly see the Earth's climate warm up very, very fast. Um, so I think that it's, it's an interesting article because it does talk about what um, we might have to grapple with someday, but it shows that geoengineering is not a neat, clean fix, uh, the way I think some people have dreamt that it would be. The uh, These kinds of ideas always bring to mind to me the scenario where there's a meteor hurtling toward the Earth, and we send a... Uh, you know, a mission out to deflect the meteor so it doesn't hit the Earth, and it turns out, oops, we deflected it just enough so that it actually does hit the Earth because it was it was going to miss closely, and then we actually messed up and and wound up bringing about our own destruction. Right, that's the curse you, Bruce Willis uh, scenario. There you go. Or it's different curse you, Bruce Willis scenario. There's nothing to do with the quality of the movies. Right. But, but yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, this is one of those things where uh, be our big technological fix could become as as big a problem as uh, as the original natural problem itself was. There's. I remember the editorial meeting where we were discussing this article, and I think at the time I brought up what I considered to be uh, a a solution that is is such a third rail that it just never gets discussed. 
Remind me. Well, because, you know, we have the $5 trillion parasol effort, the sea mist effort. You know, pumping sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere sounds nuts because of the acid rain problems. And what I said is, you know, if things really get bad enough, what will finally get put on the table for better or for worse, and it's probably for worse, but it, it needs to be discussed is, uh, the, the forced limitations on the number of children people can have. Well, you know, this does come down to a lot of sustainability issues. Uh, there, there is different, there is certainly a strain of thought that says that ultimately aren't these all population related issues and really isn't, isn't the fundamental problem one that we have, uh, too many people. And that's, that's an understandable analysis. Um, the, the problem I have with, with, Looking at it that way, obviously, is that I think um, if you're going to say that, you need to couple it to some really good solution for how you intend to start pulling down the population fast enough. And, I mean, you mentioned one way, obviously, yeah, you can start to limit the number of uh, children that people are having. But, I, I mean, I think... Honestly, if you were, if you were doing it in the, in the name of, say, trying to deal with global warming as a problem, uh, I don't think that would be a drastic enough solution. I think that even if basically people decided they were going to stop having kids or huge numbers of people over the, um, uh, over the earth were going to stop having kids voluntarily or otherwise, I'm not sure that you would actually be decreasing uh, the the level of of say greenhouse gas emissions based on con- general consumption levels uh, fast enough. I'm, I've never you know, ground numbers on anything like that, so I don't know that that's the case. But I think that's the big problem. Uh, you can boil this down to a population problem, but bear in mind what you are what you are therefore dictating because it pretty much does lead to um, just some of the most horrific situations possible. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I don't mean to endorse that idea. I'm just saying, sure. and you use the word dictating, and that's what it would require. It would require totalitarian dictatorships. Unfortunately. And I'm certainly not behind that idea. I'm just saying that if, if things got bad enough, you would see some real draconian solutions being put on the table. Let's talk about uh, the, the ongoing search for uh, an HIV vaccine and possibly even a cure based on flushing all the viral particles out of the body. Right. Uh, you know, unlike some of the other ideas, which are, as you said, sort of science fiction, speculative uh, kinds of notions, this uh, this uh, special report that we did on on the, the state of fighting HIV 25 years uh, after the discovery of the virus uh, is, uh, is, is far less speculative uh, than we could all wish it could be. Uh, it's certainly a problem we wish we were a lot farther along on this. Um, back in 1984, there were some sorts of predictions that why we should have a vaccine for this within a year didn't happen. And the answer is, of course, that uh, what we've only discovered is that HIV is is a, a much craftier, uh, more insidious virus than anybody had, had dreamt of at the time. Um, back, uh, I think, oh, about a year ago, David Baltimore, uh, Nobel laureate, had given a, a speech in which he actually was quite gloomy on this subject. He, he said that he felt that uh, really uh, the, the search for an HIV vaccine had pretty much run into a wall and uh, that we were going to have to go back to just a basic research to start to figure out uh, new new vaccine targets. Uh, the, the, one of the articles that we have in this report 
um, takes a somewhat um, more optimistic view in that it says it that there are actually already some targets we have not adequately explored and that we're going to have to start to investigate those because, indeed, it does seem like all of the, the past approaches to developing an HIV vaccine um, have gone to ground. Uh, but, uh, but, but there are still some more ideas that are on the table and we're, we have to keep working on it. Uh, vaccine is almost certainly going to have to be an important part of, of any long-term means of fighting, uh, HIV on a global scale. Um, the search for some kind of a cure is an even trickier problem um, because one question is you have to define, well, what would we mean by a, a cure for HIV? And, and as you said, you know, it really, the, in effect, it would mean that you would have to eliminate all the active virus in the body and you would have to eliminate all the cells in the body that are actively pumping out virus. Um, already that's tough, but one of the things that makes HIVs that much tougher is that we've discovered that uh, the the virus actually will uh, lie dormant inside some cells of the body. For example, some parts of the nervous system and uh, in the intestinal tract. These would not be tissues you would want to just would want to or even easily could just excise. Uh, so uh, any attempt to devise a cure. Uh, is going to be tricky, not impossible, uh, as the authors of this piece point out, but it shows the magnitude of the problem is still very, very great. This is a tough, tough virus to beat. One of the things that the article does bring up is if you... Uh, I'm not saying that the article itself mentions this. I'm saying it brings up this this thought. If you hear people, and it, it, a lot of conspiracists think that HIV was concocted in a laboratory, <laughs> and... Uh, we don't have anywhere near the technological capabilities to do that. No, we're not, we're not smart enough to be this evil. <laughs> well put. Um, we revisit in this issue the, the DNA computer idea that's been around for quite a while. Right. First it was theorized and then we actually made some DNA, uh, can't really even call them computers because they were, it was a, a test tube situation where uh, DNA molecules were used to solve various kinds of mathematical problems because DNA is an information storage medium. Right. And and I mean I think I think uh, a purist would argue that in fact they they really they were computers by virtue of the fact that they are tiny little information processing machines yes, yeah. at that level. Um but uh right. So so there's been a, a lot of interest uh, about this idea of DNA computing because you know theoretically you might be able to do something like this to develop some new ways of of uh potentially being able to to harness things that uh that cells might be able to do. You might be able to figure out a way where you could insert the right kind of DNA structure into a cell and maybe there would be some way of being able to try to control a cell with something like this. Um, there would be a lot of, of applications that would also be good uh, even just sitting in a test tube someplace. But a lot of this has has tended to be kind of theoretical, as you said. Uh, but uh, this month we have uh, a report from some scientists who show how you can uh, use DNA, and as they have, to uh, tackle one of the, the the simplest programming problems that almost anybody who's who's ever learned anything about computer programming has had to do, which is uh, get the computer to play tic tac toe. It's a it's a really elementary uh, problem for programming, and they show here's how you translate that problem into terms of of making it something that DNA molecules can solve. And the DNA molecules do this by joining together 
at the uh, lowest energy levels. And basically, when they finish joining together, uh, based on the the uh, types of strands of DNA that you put in there, you have the solution. Right, right. I mean, it's a... You'd have to go through the article to obviously get some kind of level of, of accurate portrayal of what this looks like. This this might not be a tic-tac-toe game the most people would like to play. Uh, but still, it, it shows that uh, you can use DNA computing technology to solve actual problems and give you useful results. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. We also have an article on... Handheld NMR devices. Yeah, that's right. Uh, shades of the tricorder in some way. Um, it's a little bigger than handheld at this point. It's still sort of a, a, a good sized box. But the point is that if you, if you look at the kind of technology called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, uh, most people's familiarity, familiarity with that is with MRI scanners. Um, we think of them as a big medical scanner. Um, MRI and is sort of a subset of, of NMR technology. Um, imagine if you could perform that same sort of scan, but instead of having to go to a big piece of equipment that was in a hospital or someplace else, if you could actually make that small enough to make it mobile so you could analyze things out in the world. Uh, that's what these researchers are, are working on. They've uh, already built a uh, small sort of prototype of sorts. And yes, not really quite uh, handheld at this point, but something small enough that you can, say, take it to a museum and you can use it to analyze the, uh, the fine structure of pigments inside a painting to help uh, determine more about when, when it... Uh, uh, was created, for example. I just wanted to uh, bring up the, the beginning of the plugging into the brain article, which was the first thing we discussed, has this wonderful quote from the 1980s movie Johnny Mnemonic, where the guy, you know, it's a, sort of a, a precursor. Keanu Reeves plays that guy too, and it's a precursor to his Matrix character. But uh, just to show you how science fiction can get some parts of the future right while completely missing others. Johnny Mnemonic says, I had hundreds of megabytes stashed in my head. <laughs> well, it is Keanu Reeves, after all. The SIAM website currently features a special in-depth report called Today's Alternative Energy. ScientificAmerican.com's David Biello gives us an overview of the report. I called him at his home in New York City. So, Dave, we have a, a lot of things in this alternative energy package. Today's alternative energy. So you know, we're going to talk a little bit about tomorrow's as well, but this package really looks at what is currently available out there. That's right. These are projects that uh, are either underway or, or, or shortly to be underway, even despite the fiscal crisis, um, that are meant to solve many parts of our energy crisis. Uh, so we have things such as offshore wind, which uh, will remove those uh, unsightly wind turbines from your uh, Cape Cod uh, beachfront property. Uh, as well as solar power in Spain and uh, wave power in Portugal. Let's talk about what is, when you go to the, the homepage for this feature, I mean, it, it clearly stands out as the most fascinating item, and that is, of course, the solar-powered refrigerators. <laughs> yes, and uh, you're not alone in that interest. What's surprising, I guess, about the solar-powered refrigerator is that really all you need to make a refrigerator work is some heat. And, of course, 
the sun is a very powerful heat source, as you can tell by sitting out in it any summer day. And uh, with the right combination of uh, liquids and gases, that simple sun's heat can provide uh, enough refrigeration to keep vaccines on ice in the developing world or, or keep food fresh or whatever else you might need a refrigerator to do. So we're not using the sun to, to we're not converting it with panels to electricity to operate a refrigerator. We're actually using the heat. That's correct. It's a direct conversion, and that actually saves some of the uh, energy. So uh, going through the messy process of uh, converting photons, uh, you know, light into electricity um, is a fairly inefficient process. And then shipping that electricity from where the sunlight is collected to your refrigerator is also an inefficient process. But uh, kind of collecting the heat from the sun that pours down on your house or ship or wherever else you might have your solar refrigerator installed um, is a very direct way of uh, providing cooling. And we, we needn't go into the full details. You can read the article. It's online and it's free. But for those of you who remember your thermodynamics courses with your Carnot cycles, which I still ride around on every once in a while, and your compressing and expanding gases, why, it's child's play. That's right. So uh, what's going on in Spain with solar power? Well, Spain has uh, quickly kind of catapulted to the lead in solar power development, whether you're talking about photovoltaic fields or uh, solar thermal power plants. Those are, again, uh, power plants that harvest the heat of the sun um, and really any other solar technology in between. And that's because the Spanish government has seen fit to generously subsidize uh, the production of solar power, given that Spain has or Spain is so well known for its uh, sunshine, to help make that power source uh, more competitive with other more polluting power sources, such as uh, coal or, or natural gas or other fossil fuels. But our headline is, is the sun setting on solar power? That's right, because we've actually come to the end of that cycle. Spain is, is not the world's largest country, nor is it the world's richest country, and that means that... Uh, both the support for these generous subsidies is starting to wane a little bit, and um, the solar market, as it were, is getting kind of maxed out. Uh, so the solar companies that have been developed uh, in Spain over this time are now looking abroad. Uh, one of those companies is actually building the largest solar power plant in the U.S. now, and they're also looking to North Africa and other places with a lot of uh, sunshine to kind of put the solar expertise they've garnered in Spain with the generous subsidies to work in places with less generous subsidies. It's interesting. The the silver lining in the high gas prices that we saw was that it, it was sending a price signal to really start developing alternative fuel technologies. But gas prices have plummeted over the last month and a half or so. And uh, so that signal may dissipate and uh, and we may wind up being back at square one. I know that the price supports, the congressional price supports and subsidies for uh, alternative uh, fuel technology were defeated until the bailout bill, and they were snuck in there as riders in the bailout bill. That's so, right. So, uh, you know, that that's the, another silver lining in the bailout bill. That's right. Although this time around, um, and that's pretty much what happened in the 1970s, we had some pretty strong uh, alternative energy programs in the wake of the first oil shock, as it were, and 
those kind of uh, withered on the vine as cheap oil came back in the 1980s and uh, 1990s. But there are some different drivers this time around, one of which is uh, a global environmental problem that you might have heard of called climate change. That seems to be driving investment in the direction of cleaner energy sources rather than rather than fossil fuels, particularly if some kind of a national program, whether cap and trade or a carbon tax or whatever else, uh, begins to regulate the amount of uh, carbon dioxide emissions and other greenhouse gases that we can put into the atmosphere. In that kind of a regime, uh, alternative energy sources, whether solar power or geothermal or whatever else you might want, um, would actually have a cost benefit compared to fossil fuels. Right, so it would right. be cheaper. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the tidal uh, possibilities with Portugal. And I remember for, for decades now, we've been hearing about the, the possibilities of the Bay of Fundy. Mm-hmm. And so is, is, uh, the attempt to harness all the energy in tides really going to go any place? Well, that's probably the, the most forward looking of all the articles. Uh, wave power is definitely in its infancy. There's a lot of wave power out there. The problem is, uh, getting the technology together that can both harness the power in the waves and the power in the tides, and also withstand the power in the tides and the power in the waves. Um, it's it's pretty uh, uh, rough stuff out there, and uh, machinery doesn't fare too well. Not to mention the salt water, which is uh, extremely corrosive to any metal you want to put in it. But we do seem to be getting a lot closer. There are now actual wave power plant power plants in production off the coast of Portugal, and actually in the Bay of Fundy. Slowly but surely, we seem to be approaching that goal. The tide is turning. That's right. I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so um, the the kind of theme you see here is that, uh, you know, wind power, solar power, tidal power, geothermal. We have an article about Icelandic geothermal power is rather than dig into the earth for the energy that's been stored there for millions of years is grab the the steady state energy that's out there right now that's right the ambient energy and by combining all of those uh you can actually provide all the power needs one of the knocks on renewable power is that it's uh intermittent you know the wind isn't always blowing the sun obviously isn't always shining um but by combining that with something like geothermal which is a 24/7 as it were uh power source you can actually even out and and basically entirely replace the fossil fuel infrastructure with a renewable infrastructure. The in-depth report today's alternative energy is available at the website scientificamerican.com or go to snipurl.com slash 4LJ71 and listen to David Biello on the 62nd Earth podcast every week. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, under ultraviolet light, ripe bananas are bright blue. Story two, researchers have found an entire ecosystem made up of just one species. Story three, you know the famous five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Well, a new study finds that there's actually often a sixth stage, anticipation. And story four, India has launched a rocket to the moon. 
Time's up. Story one is true. Ripe bananas are bright blue under UV light. That's according to research published in the German chemistry journal Angewandte Chemie. The blue glow is related to the breakdown products of chlorophyll, which concentrate in the peel. Some animals that eat bananas can see in the UV range, so the blue color might be a clue to them that the fruit is ready. Story two is true. There's apparently a deep underground natural ecosystem that consists of only a single species of bacterium. The research was reported in the journal Science. The species lives in a fluid-filled crack some three kilometers below the surface in a South African gold mine, and appears to be utterly independent of any other living things. And story four is true. India launched a two-year moon mission October 22nd. The major goal is to establish a detailed three-dimensional map of the surface. All of which means that story three about a sixth stage of grief is totally bogus. In fact, there's actually no evidence that most people will go through most of the accepted five stages and in any particular order at that. For more, check out Michael Shermer's column in the November Scientific American magazine and at the website called "The Five Fallacies of Grief." You'll find it at siam.com/siammag. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit siam.com for all the latest science news, blogs, and videos. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.